You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 19th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. I think it's uh, reaching a little bit much to imagine we suddenly see this blossoming of political maturity. After an election that reshaped the political map, the UK Parliament is once again open for business. But will it be business as usual? My guests Daniela Pellet and Marie Leconte will discuss that and the day's other news, including how long is too long as Vladimir Putin nears 20 years, give or take, leading Russia. We will ask if there is or should be a universally accepted best before date in leadership. We'll also be discussing some of our favourite fictional countries, plus a look at Italian politics. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Daniela Pellet, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and Marie Leconte, political journalist and author. We will start here in the UK, currently a week into what may be a long process of trying to assimilate the fact that Boris Actual Johnson is somehow Prime Minister. The Queen opened Parliament today and outlined the new government's plans. On the other side of the aisle, the field seeking the leadership of the Labour Party is saddling up following last Thursday's martyrdom of St Jeremy. Um, Daniela, first of all, we'll start with the government. Do we yet, uh, however well we think we know him, understand yet what kind of Prime Minister Boris Johnson is going to be? Uh, I think he'll probably be the same kind of Prime Minister um, as he was and the same kind of uh, mayor as he was and the same kind of Boris Johnson as Boris Johnson al- or always was. I think it's uh, reaching a little bit much to imagine we suddenly see this blossoming of political maturity uh, when he's going to be the Prime Minister looks like the next five years maybe even the next 10 years are you anticipating a lot of unbuilt bridges both actual and metaphorical uh, I, yeah i think there's going to be quite a lot of huffing and quite a lot of puffing and uh, lots of gaffes uh, some more serious than than the other i mean what we're all you know in the way that people do trying to make themselves feel better after sort of political crises uh we're all saying oh actually he's got such a mandate and he's going to not be in uh, enthralled to the right wing of his party and actually he's going to do loads of stuff for the nhs but i think we're all just trying to make ourselves feel a bit better Um, But I do think that in terms of finding out what sort of prime minister he's going to be for the next five years, we kind of have to wait for early February. So the next proper reshuffle is meant to be then. So the idea is we have to get Brexit out of the way first and then we'll have a full scale sort of reshuffle. I think that'll be the really interesting thing because actually over the summer we had no idea what sort of PM Boris was going to be until he appointed, you know, people like Dominic Raab and Priti Patel. And then everyone felt, okay, you know, this is not going to be one nation Boris. This is actually Boris who's quite right wing. So I, I do think that, yeah, seeing who he wants to surround himself with for the long run. Well, on um, a related subject, Murray, it is always one of the joys of a government being elected with an unexpectedly large majority. There will be a number of new Tory MPs who nobody really thought was going to get elected and were just kind of put up as placeholders in their seats. How long do you give it before we start learning some incredibly entertaining things about them? So actually, that, that's very much been the chatter in Westminster this week. <laughs> I've, I've had a lots of conversations along those lines, and especially from sort of like Tory friends who are very very anxious about it <laughs> and you know and apparently I've heard you know one story of one person who had basically been blacklisted in all but names to put in a complete no hope seed because they couldn't just get rid of him 
Um, but, you know, so kind of put him over there. And he won. He's an MP now. Um, to everyone's surprise. So, no, there will definitely be, I think, quite a lot of anxiously waiting from CCHQ to see who ends up saying what <laughs> over the next few months. Well, that, that's something we have to look forward to. Daniela, the other thing we have to look forward to is, of course, the, the Labour leadership contest. Uh, so far as it's possible to tell, what do you sense that Labour has actually learned from last week's experience? Uh, I, can I answer very briefly and say nothing? <laughs> um, really nothing. I mean, I think, again, we're, in the, we're going through the seven stages of, of grief here for the Labour Party and uh, and I, I can't remember which we are at. I think we're still at anger, maybe. There's a few more stages to to go. But uh, it's quite edifying to see all the senior figures sort of scurrying around saying it wasn't me. Actually, I never thought this was a good idea. I told Jeremy. I did. I told him, etc., etc., etc. But the fact is, is that the Corbyn faction still has charge of the party. I mean, they can still, they're, they're still basically in charge of the, of the apparatus. And now that uh, Mr. Corbyn is taking his sweet time in a transition period, which is a massive, what a, what a euphemism that is, um, I think it's, uh, it, it, it's really impossible to tell. And, you know, there are plenty of very capable people still in leadership roles in the Labour Party. But would you really want to be the Labour leader right now when the traumas are still unfolding? And there's another, I think they might have to add some stages of grief onto the usual seven uh, to try and process what's happened. Uh, Murray, there has, as Daniela rightly points out, been a lot of chatter from Corbyn enthusiasts about how how dreadful it is that the, the voters have lost touch with the Labour Party. But <laughs> uh, but do you sense that this is a good time for anybody who seriously fancies themselves as a serious Labour Prime Minister to actually get the job? Because realistically, it might not be a five-year proposition. This might be a decade. Um, well, I, I do think that, you know, that they're currently fighting to basically be the new Neil Kinnock. Um, but also, no, so what I found really interesting, actually, over the past week has been, uh, so pro-Corbyn people saying, well, Jeremy needs to stay on for longer, you know, until things calm down. And then anti-Corbyn people saying, no, he needs to go now. When actually that should have been the other way around, because surely more time gives factions more time to actually, you know, organise themselves, find the better leader, find the better policies, etc. And then let's say there's a leadership contest in sort of like six to nine months, say, OK, this is what we have. As opposed to, I think, the closer to the election a leadership contest is, the more likely it is that the Corbyn faction will just be able to say, there you go, you know, we're still in control of the machine. This is who we want. This is who we're going to get, etc. So I'm not, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I don't think having the leadership contest that early on was the best idea. And yet, as a result, I, I, I don't know. I, I do not think um, that whoever wins now will be the next PM. I just think, uh, you know, Magic Grandpa has become so embarrassing that they want to... He, anybody sensible just wants him gone now and it doesn't really matter uh, about timing and about how prepared you are. Uh, final quick thought on British politics, uh, which I'll put to you, Murray. Uh, one of the actual big things that Boris Johnson is going to have to confront sooner rather than later is Scotland. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon uh, saying again today that she's really not kidding. She wants another referendum on independence. Do you get the sense that Boris Johnson, who did make a big noise of appointing himself, you know, the the not just the prime minister, but the the minister for you know the union, and and he does lead what is still technically known as the Conservative and Unionist Party. Do you think he's actually that bothered about whether Scotland remains in the UK or not? Oh, I actually think so. so I was talking to one of the Scottish Conservative MPs who lost their seats yesterday, 
Um, and I think there will definitely be sort of like an effort on both sides of the border um, to create, because I think they're trying to create a um, department for the union and actually get, you know, proper sort of like presence up in Scotland as well, kind of making the argument, because that's not something the Westminster government have always been very good at, kind of making the argument physically in Scotland as well, on top of, you know, just from Westminster. So I, I do actually think he cares, but mostly because... Um, you know, because Boris is someone who's obsessed with his legacy, I think, um, already even more so than other prime ministers. So he cannot be seen, I think, purely on an ego basis as, you know, as, as the PM who lost Scotland. Daniela Pellet and Marie Leconte will have more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Yolene Goffin with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Donald Trump has become just the third US president to be impeached. Members of the House of Representatives found that he had abused his power and also obstructed Congress. It means that the Republican-led Senate will now decide whether the president should be removed from office. New South Wales has declared a state of emergency as Australia grapples with record-breaking temperatures. The nation endured its hottest ever day on Tuesday, but that record was beaten again yesterday as thermometers saw an average maximum of almost 42 Celsius. The Arsenal footballer Mesut Ozil has been removed from China's version of a video game following his criticism of China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims. Ozil, who is a Muslim, has called Uyghurs warriors who resist persecution. He has now been removed from pro-evolution soccer in China. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Yolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Marie Leconte and Daniela Pellet. Uh, let's move seamlessly along. One lesson Labour could usefully have learned is the one about allowing leaders to stay in office too long. In the case of Jeremy Corbyn, about four years too long. The question is raised by the looming 20th anniversary in charge of Russia of President Vladimir Putin. He became acting president on New Year's Eve 1999, following the resignation of Boris Yeltsin to spend more time with his vodka and has remained firmly ensconced in the Kremlin ever since, notwithstanding the four years he let his mini-me Dmitry Medvedev have a go behind the big desk so Putin could skirt term limits. Um, Daniela, on that thought right there, are term limits basically a good idea? Well, and they make sense, really, as part of a democratic uh, institution. I mean, in general, I would say democracy kind of takes care of of overstayers, um, especially... Um, party systems. Uh, if you look at uh, international politics, anything over about a decade, and we start to get into to dodgy territory. And there are vanishingly few examples, I think, of proper functioning democracies where people have stayed on much, much longer. The counterbalance to that argument, Murray, is, of course, is that the electorate is the term limit, that it should be up to the people to decide that if they want a given potentate to crack on for decades, then that option should be available to them, as it is, for example, under the United Kingdom system. Boris Johnson could be prime minister for the next 50 years. Yay! (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, no, I I completely agree. But I do think it's about the length of the terms as well, because we obviously had that problem in France. Um, until relatively recently in the grand scheme of things of because uh, our presidential terms were seven years so François Mitterrand was technically only elected twice but that's 14 years which is an, an incredibly uh, like a massive amount of time so I, I don't really know I suppose I suppose most of the time you probably don't need term limits but only in the case that the actual terms are kept reasonably short. 
if that makes sense. Because Australia, where I am from, inherited the Westminster system, which means that theoretically there's no limit to how long an Australian Prime Minister can go on for. The record, I think, stands, I think it's 18 years, something like that. It's, I'm reliably informed by my parents who lived through the, the reign of uh, Sir Robert Menzies that it seemed even longer than that. <laughs> um, but, but, Daniela, how long is too long? Because the thing is, all jokes aside head of government running a country it's a, it's a high pressure job it does genuinely take an actual toll on people if you can compare and contrast photos of people once they took office and once they leave it it's not just the fact that they might be five or six years older is there a point at which people basically for their own good and therefore that of the country should just be told yep thanks for your service but you're done i don't think it's a physical thing but i think people do inevitably start to go a bit bonkers with power and that's the that's the example we can look you know even with the endemic democratic system and then they're usually politically defenestrated so to speak as what happened with with margaret thatcher so uh, it, the term limits tend to take care of uh, themselves if you have uh, a party that's willing to and willing and able to stab you in the back which is also a sign of democracy um, do either of you have a particular favorite overstaying leader i i, I have advanced australia's contribution to the genre <laughs> uh, sir robert menzies who's actually in his 18 year stretch i think it was 18 years something like that was actually his second crack he was briefly <laughs> he was very briefly prime minister 39 to 41 and then came back wow. and had another go after the war um, no, I was actually looking at this um, on the way here, and Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan was quite interesting because he was there for 29 years, so left this year. 29 years was very long, and that included in 2007 uh, getting an amendment through Parliament, which obviously, you know, a very, you know, a Parliament that's very independent, as you can imagine, <laughs> um, that allowed him personally to have more terms, but not future Kazakhstan presidents. So it was literally a motion to say the incumbent can remain president if he so wishes, but, but not the ones after that. And the best thing as well, is that not only is still like leader of the of the country officially, but they named the capital after him, North Sultan, uh, in honour, which is a pretty great legacy. <laughs> it really is. But um, just to go back to what Daniela was saying, Marie, is there is there are there any examples of actually governments improving as, or at least as, as premierships or presidencies improving the longer they get? Is it the thing with politics that you get a kind of burst of energy when you take the job and you have that initial surge of goodwill, presumably, from the people uh, who elected you? And it's, it's generally all kind of downhill from there, isn't it? It kind of is. I'm kind of actually struggling to, to think of examples that would support the theory that, you know, very long governments are better. I do think, and again, I think it's kind of coming back to the term times as well, because I think that if governments don't have the fire in them of, you know, we're maybe about to get kicked out and, you know, probably have to give something to the voters, then it gives them like far too much time and space to busy do what they want instead, which is not always the best thing. Um, I, I should mention, uh, with reference to Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest-serving Prime Minister, and this, this is just me crowbarring one of my favourite Australian <laughs> facts into the discourse, uh, is that he was succeeded by one of Australia's shorter-serving Prime Ministers, Harold Holt, uh, who went missing at sea um, oh. not long into the job. In fact, it was the anniversary of it two days ago, 1969, it would have been. No, 67. Wrong anniversary. Anyway, Harold, <laughs> Harold Holt went missing at sea, um, and his body was never found. Uh, not long afterwards, and I'm not making this up, uh, in Melbourne, a, a swimming pool was named after him. 
<laughs> Gotta love the Australians. Yeah, I, I don't even think they thought they were trying to be funny. Um, but anyway, finally on today's news panel, we shall go to the United States and a cautionary tale of the perils of attempting to be amusing with placeholder copy. Uh, we have all done this, I hope, and I would like at this time to apologise to the indie rock group whose picture appeared in Melody Maker's Reading Festival coverage of 1994 above the caption, Who the fuck is this? <laughs> anyway, until someone spotted it yesterday, the website of the US Agriculture Culture Department listed on its website's tariff tracker the nation of Wakanda, which exists only in Marvel Comics as the homeland of Black Panther, although for the right price Donald Trump could probably be persuaded to appoint you ambassador. It was, says the department, part of a systems test. Um, does, does anybody, before we actually get into the thing we're going to discuss, have anything they want to confess about placeholder copy? Anybody? Um, I don't think I've ever had anything... Exactly like this. However, a piece was unpublished in the Telegraph about the UN with a massive picture of Owen Wilson. Um, <laughs> and I went for lunch after just after doing that as well without my phone, so that that was stayed on the website for an hour. So that's my confession. <laughs> Daniela, seriously, have you enjoyed a career in journalism unblemished by any such transgression? Um, unfortunately, the internet will prove me prove otherwise. But yeah, it's all. I mean, it's all. Classic journo fun, isn't it? It really, really is. I, I did. I was once uh, saved by an editor who wrote back about a record review I'd filed, intending to look up the name of a singer later, uh, asking if the singer's name was really Bill Dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, very glad she caught that one. That that wasn't his his real name. I hasten to stress. Uh, we did want to talk about fictional countries uh, and ideally which one you would most move to if you could. Uh, Daniela, if the option came up, where would you rather be? Well, maybe I'm showing my age here but uh i would have to choose narnia however narnia without the misogyny and the massive racism if that's okay if that could be arranged that would be perfect <laughs> I, I don't think i ever got all the way through that book i which, which chapters Five of them or any of them which which chapters do the the racism and misogyny appear in i mean sort of every page actually <laughs> okay. but they have like talking animals and and uh, all kinds of magic and fun so if so, i could keep that but get rid of the patriarchy your, so your dream destination is a woke Narnia? Mm -hmm. Like a Scandinavian Narnia. A Scandinavian, mm -hmm. Scandinavia, if you will. <laughs> um, Marie, where, where would you rather be right now? Um, I actually, on that exact note, um, I'm going to say I'm, I'm going to stay with a comics theme and go with Temescara, the island uh, from Wonder Woman. Uh, so the island that is this sort of like magical kingdom, which will only remain magical as long as no man ever steps foot on that island. Um, <laughs> And I, I, think, really I think you've just described the Narnia <laughs> that Daniela wanted to move to. And yeah, and it's just women learning to do really cool things like fighting and horseback riding and sort of shooting arrows and stuff um, in this lovely kind of Mediterranean weather island. It sounds really fun. See, the, the reason I liked this story very much was it, it is, as so much of the, the Trump years are, actually almost identical to an Onion story from about 20 <laughs> years ago. The headline of which, if I remember it rightly, was something along the lines of ambas US ambassador to Bolungi, suspected of having <laughs> made country up. Um, and, and the idea was that this, this guy had pitched this to Bill Clinton, who'd, who'd, who'd arranged him to become the United States emissary there. See, I, I was also going to suggest, um, was it Sylvain? and Borduria, the fictional Balkan republics that underpin several Tintin narratives. Yeah, that too without the racism. <laughs> the Again, so, so basically where we're looking to move to is basically somewhere without the racism and misogyny. That would make a nice change. Yeah, mm. it, indeed it would. And nice weather. 
Marie Leconte and Daniela Pellet, thank you for joining us. In a moment, a little bit more about the current politics of Italy. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte may have made a name for himself as a relatively steady presence at the top of Italy's often chaotic politics. But, as Chiara Ramella explains, quiet competence doesn't always work come election day. How do you like your politicians? Do you want them loud, charismatic, bold and memorable? Or do you prefer them just to get the job done in the background? A recent poll in Italy shows that Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte, while often criticised for being in the shadow of the more boisterous far-right Lega leader Matteo Salvini, is the most popular political leader in the country. His approval rating is currently at 49%, 13 percentage points above that of Salvini. Conte, clearly pleased with the results, says the rating demonstrates that acting like crazy is not useful. A fatigue with the almost incessant political chaos is probably the main reason for Italians getting behind a relatively vanilla Conte. But whether that approval will translate to future electoral success is another matter. The much-discussed technocratic government of Mario Monti also at times enjoyed higher approval ratings than any other political party. When it comes to elections, Italians, and many voters beyond the Belpaese's borders too, tend to forget what stability feels like. For politicians on the campaign trail, acting like crazy really isn't that much of a crazy option. Thanks to Chiara Ramella. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View is produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. Thank you.